Welcome to another episode of I Own a Business, where we focus on helping practice owners grow the practice of their dreams. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Vargo, and we are doing this one in person. I have with me here my, my good friend, Sharon Carter, who is actually a keynote at the Connection in Orlando, which is where we're at right now. And she's also founder of the consulting group I care optometric consulting. So it's so great to see you. How you been? I have been great, Steve. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I watch them, listen to them, and I always enjoy them. Very informational, and I always take away something. So I'm excited to be asked to be a part of that today. Well, you are a wealth of knowledge, and when we were talking before about what we're going to talk about, we landed on, on team building, certainly something that is within your uh, wheelhouse you consult in a lot of different areas, but I, I think we could agree that if you don't get the team right, that it's very difficult to make a lot of the other things happen. I want to read something directly off your website. Yeah. And, and we'll use that to, to build on. You can make drama or you can make money, but you can't make both. The thing that Zig always said, I think you're a fan of Zig Ziglar. I believe um, you even met I built him. my, yes, many times I built my whole business around his philosophy. If you help enough other people get the things in life they want, you have everything in life you want. So yes, I'm a Zig fan. The thing that Zig always said about building a team is that together everyone achieves more. I have found in my 25 plus years of consulting that this is the magic wand to creating a multi-million dollar practice. The team is everything. That's that's right off your website. So let's start there. What What is your approach to team building? So. It definitely, people ask me all the time, when you're building these multi-million dollar practices, how, where do you start? What's the magic? What's the magic wand that you take? And I always tell them it's your people. And when I'm, when I'm speaking to people, I say, I build the people who build the practice. And that's what we have to focus on, is finding those team players. And that can be a challenge, Steve, as you know. I mean, you've worked with people, you've been in private practice. Finding those people that fit on your team um, can be a challenge not just that can they perform the duties of what you're asking them to do, but are they within the same culture? Are they within the same mindset that you are that, you know, number one is our patient care. That, that's what we're here for. So the very first focus when I'm looking for a team player is, are they patient oriented? Do they care the experience that the patient's having? And that's number one. And number two is, are their philosophies, are they goal oriented? You know, can they buy into our goals? Can they get on our team and work together? and? Uh, as as working in this industry for 36 years, 26 years consulting, you find a lot of people who are very, very gifted and very talented in what they do, whether they're on the clinical side or the retail side. Amazing people, and I mean, they are a one-man show. But that's all it's gonna be is a one-man show. And I tell people it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do, it's how good you make us as a team. And so being able to walk into that team philosophy and ask what's my part on this team, there's no I, What's the me that's going to make this team go to the next level? And that's the challenge. And we find people because we're in a 911 situation sometimes and they are breathing. They can, they can do the job. And so we keep them. Instead of looking at, is this my all-star team? Is the, and then I say all the time with my doctors, is this the people that are going to take you to the next level? If we're at a million, are these the people that are going to take us to two million? And then we try to give them the tools that's going to get there because just having them there and giving them a position and telling them what we expect um, can set them up for failure sometimes because they don't always come with the tools like leadership, like even managing them out their own self sometimes. 
um, they need some help and they need some tools. So that's our job as the leaders at the top is to give them the tools they need to be that team player that we're looking for. But, oh, it's so much fun when you get, you watch a team play. You know, we just saw, uh, I'm not a big sports fan, but um, I have a lot of people who are from Kansas. And so they just saw Kansas win and they were just like, hearing them talk about it, they're so excited. That's what a well-oiled machine of a team looks like. And in our offices, that's what we have to look for too. Who are the people that are showing us on a daily basis that they're part of our team? And if they're not, and this is another one of my sayings, we're not going to stop loving them. We're just going to blow them a kiss and love them from a distance. Let's talk about the beginning and the end, as you just alluded to, what could potentially be the end, and then maybe we'll get into some of the meat in the middle on, on managing people. The beginning. So how do you, what is your approach to interviewing, which is not a perfect science. The best HR managers in the world sometimes get it wrong, but what is your approach to interviewing and perhaps understanding maybe getting clear on what kind of person we need from the beginning and then increasing our odds. Again, it's not a perfect science, but increasing our odds of getting somebody who's going to be a good fit. And then where along the, the journey do you decide this is not going to work out? Oh, this is exciting. So I had to come up with an interview process several years ago because I realized, and you and I were talking about this before we started the podcast, of how you're an introvert, I'm an extrovert and how that's two different mentalities, how that's two uh, different ways that we go about things and how we need that on, we need some of those people on our team, both kinds of people, but there's a place for those people. So the first thing I did was create a seminar called Personalities in the Workplace. And I took the personalities and the one I use is from Florence Littire's book, Personality Plus, and you look at how people are wired. And if you can put someone in a place that they're wired to do, you're teaching them how you do it, but they're wired to, I mean, they come to work, they're so excited because they're doing what they love. And that's the very first part of setting them up to win. So I give them a personality evaluation on the very beginning so that I know kind of what I'm getting. And I tell them, I want to match the person with the job. I want you to come to work every day excited because you're doing what you love. And so that's part of my interview process. Um, I have interview questions. I like to know what they're, planning for the future? Are they invested in our corporation, in our company, and in our patients? Um, so I have a whole interview process. And if anybody would like that, um, I would be glad to send that to them um, because it, it came together and gr has grown over the last 26 years to try to set ourselves up to win because we spend a lot of time and money interviewing those people. Um, then we do a shadowing. I like for them to come in and see, this is what life looks like. And I, I do it at the busiest time I can possibly bring them in. And they get to see this is what it's going to look like on a day-to-day -day basis. These are the people I'm going to be working with. And that does a couple of things. The first thing it does is it doesn't surprise them when they come in and see what life looks like. The second thing is, is that they get to meet the people they're going to be working with. So that when they come to work on the first day, instead of them being, oh my gosh, are they going to like me? Am I going to like the job? They're coming in all excited. One girl told me, she said, this is my job. Can I start at eight o'clock in the morning? This is my job. They already know and they're identifying, this is my place. And so that's my interview process is we go through the interview process, sit down, then we shadow, and then we pick our person that's our best candidate. Um, I always try to handle everyone that I don't pick in a professional way because sometimes I have to go back to those people if that person doesn't work out. Then I do a 90-day, um, and I tell them this is 90-day probationary period when you're going to decide if we're a good fit for you and we're going to decide if you're a good fit for us. 
And if at any time during this time you go, you know what, this just isn't for me, there's no hard feelings. We, we want somebody that feels like I'm a good fit here and we want to feel like you're a good fit for us. So that's on the beginning part of it. And then we try to sit down every year, at least once a year, and do an evaluation and tell them what they've done great at for the year, what we, what we see for them as goals. And then I love to ask people this, give me some personal and professional goals for yourself for the next year. Because so many people that we work with, they've never set a goal. They have no idea, you know, am I even thinking ahead? I come to work, I have a job, I get paid a paycheck. But when you can get people invested in the journey and they have a vision that matches up with a vision for your practice and your patients, that's a success for, for um, setting yourself up for success. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we do on the way through. Um, your other question was, what do we do when we realize that we are having behaviors or we're having things happen in their performance of their job that's not acceptable? This is one of the biggest things. It's the hardest thing for us in the world of optometry. We have the mentality. We put our head in the sand, and it's going to it's going to change. What well, does change? But it's for the worse, not for the better. So we have to address things as they happen immediately. So we have to have proactive leadership that when we see things that are not fitting in our culture, that are not uh, getting us what we need with our patients, not taking care of our patients at the level we need, we have to address those things. And we start out addressing those in a in a more informal way. Um, hey, I'm observing this with, with you, and really, we this is how we would like this to, to happen with our patients. And then I always ask this question, is there any reason why we can't do it this way? And if they say no, then they're telling me I can do it. The question is, will they do it? And then the next question I ask them is, what do you need from me? Do you need anything from me to help you get this done in the way I'm asking you to do it? Because I want to be a tool for them. If they need something, and sometimes they'll say, Sharon, my time is just so crazy. There's no way I can get that done. Then I'll say, okay, then I'm going to observe and we'll see. And if I really want you to do that, then what I'll do is I'll see what I can take off of your plate and redelegate to someone else. So just being proactive, hearing them, um, helping make the corrections we need in a timely manner. If, if you correct something within the first three or four times they do it, it's very easy to correct and they don't take it offensively. They make the changes usually. If you wait six months, it's over. It's a habit. And then it's you calling them out. It's defensive. And very seldom are you going to be able to make those corrections and keep that, that person as a good employee if you don't make the corrections quickly. And I find that is the very hardest thing in our world is having that because they, they feel like that's a conflict. And I said, it's not a conflict. It's a re-education. Let's think, change our mindset that we're not calling them out. We're calling them up to be better. And when you go into it with the mindset of we're going to call them up, I'm calling you up to be better for our patients, not calling you out with your bad behavior. I'm calling you up to be better. So that's my philosophy is how do we approach it in a positive way that, that people feel we want them to be successful. Um, you, you know you've worked with staff. A lot of times they feel like you're trying to fire me you want, you want me to leave. And I've had people say that to me. You just want to fire me. And I said, well, if I wanted to fire you, I would have already fired you. I want you to be successful. And I'm going to give you every tool I can to help you. But these are things that have to change if you're going to be a, a success on our team. Your approach is more, because feedback is so critical. And a lack of feedback leads to so many of the problems. And I, I hear the same thing a lot. 
whether it's a an employee that's just not not performing at the level they need to be performing at or whether there's you know behavioral issues is the in, in many cases just haven't been given the feedback or we're going to wait till that annual review or we're going to wait till that quarterly review it sounds like your approach is more giving people that feedback in the moment and it, there is a certain repetition i think that goes along with being a leader there's a, a phrase i heard when you're tired of hearing yourself say it that's when people are starting to hear it and i think that goes into a lot of the, the culture building is people tend to place more priority on the things that they're they're hearing over and over but do you have any particular recommendation or format you know some people are well we have our morning huddle or our weekly meeting is your approach more aligned with just giving feedback in the moment when it it it's probably most visible to the to the employee that that needs to hear it that's definitely important but we have to have communication any business that you're in if you're going to keep everybody on task and everybody on the same page and even keep your culture the same you have to have meetings on a regular basis my best case scenario is weekly meetings we're looking at our goals we're looking at is there anything that we've had happen the last week that we need to talk about that we could handle better is there anything coming up for the next week just good communication that is the one thing that i find in practices that's lacking it's my biggest challenge in every practice i go into is getting the same communication to everybody on the team and anytime someone on the team gets a piece of information that everybody doesn't get, there's a feeling that they're on the in and I'm on the out. That create, starts creating the unstableness in a team when they feel like I'm not, I'm not in on everything that everybody else is getting to be in on. And then they're not as in on your practice as they could be because they don't feel like you're bringing them into the huddle. So I always like to have a weekly meeting. Um, I have offices that don't do weekly meetings. They don't do monthly meetings. When I come, we do a monthly meeting. We shut everything down and we have two hours. We have something that we're going to talk about that we're going to either implement, um, some training or something that we do, but we also go over numbers. Where are we? That keeps everybody solid on what is our focus and what's my part in that. And there's an accountability. When you're giving your numbers and everybody's numbers are over the top and then you give your numbers and it's on the bottom, there's a level of accountability. And what I find though is very interesting is a lot of my teams will say, what can I help you to do to get your numbers up? Hey, what if we do this? Will that help you? Because they're in it together. They see it as a team. So that's the biggest thing is the team because you're not gonna build a multi-million dollar practice, one person or one man show. It has to be a team of people that are focused on the same goals, the same vision, and, you know, I hear it, my favorite book is the Bible, and it says where there's no vision, the people perish because there's no hope. People have to have hope. If you want them to perform at a high level and you want them to take care of your patients, they have to have a vision and a hope of why am I doing this? What is the outcome here? What are we, what are we working for? And when you can create that for them and they're working towards that vision, it's amazing. You can do things that you never thought you could do. I've had doctors say to me, I never thought we could make this much money, take this good care of our patients. I'm just blown away. But that's the magic of it is the, it's the drive, the motivation and inspiration of all these people on the team coming together. And it's just like when, when my Kansas people got to watch their chiefs win, everybody becomes involved in that. And what you see when you build this team 
is patients walking in your office saying, oh my gosh, I love to come here. Y'all are awesome. They write five-star reviews. This place is wonderful. They take care of their patients because what you've built as a culture is carrying over to your patients. And then they start telling people, whether that's in a Google review or whether that's in the people they're sitting across coffee with, is, oh my gosh, these people are amazing. And that's who we are. In my offices, that's who we are. That's our culture. What is your approach to creating a culture where people want to contribute? I think we all know the dangers of micromanaging, where people don't feel like they have a voice in the process. They'll stop coming up with ideas. Why come up with my own ideas if they're just going to get shot down and I'm just going to be told what to do? And that's something that some leaders still struggle with, especially if you're a bit of a control freak and you want your hands on everything. Uh, where do we let go of control? So what is your process for creating an environment where people feel as though they have not only have a voice, but they, they really want to contribute to what's going on? It is hard because a lot of my doctors are micromanagers. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is, is having clear outlines of what you expect from your employees. So very clear job descriptions, very clear things that here's what you're accountable for, and then very good feedback. Even if it's, you know, I th think doctors get confused and think, okay, I don't have to tell them anything unless they're not doing a good job. But what re people really need to hear is, high five, you kill that. Man, the way you worked with that patient. And I, I tell them, we look, at, we look for fault like there's a reward in it. There's not. There's a reward in it for you when you look for people doing things correct and doing things right. And calling those people out on those things, man, you killed it with that patient. They wanted a refund, man, not only did you fix that, but you sold them another pair of glasses. High five, I'm so glad you're on my team. Words of encouragement, but give them the task and let them do it. And I think the hardest thing for my doctors is they may not do it the way you do it, but you have to ask yourself, are we getting to the same end result? Because we're not all exactly the same, we're different. But we're looking for an end result. And when you let them get to that end result and we make sure they get there, we have things in place that holds them accountable for their behaviors. Then you start bringing the creativity out because when you're micromanaging, they don't look at what do I need to do next? They wait for you to tell them what to do next. So when you let them be creative and they say, well, I didn't do it exactly like you, you had it set out, but I did this. This is what I, the results I got. Actually, it was a little bit better than what I thought we were gonna get. And then when you high five them and say, man, that's awesome. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who can put the thought into that and, and come up with things because you're valuable. You see things I don't see. When you give them that type of feedback and you encourage that and encourage them, here it is, I'm not gonna micromanage you, but you will be held accountable. And when they're held accountable for things, they, they start realizing, okay, there's consequences, good or bad, to how I perform in this job. And that creates them thinking because I, I say to my managers all the time that I have um, staff that never, the brain never engages. And we have one person in the office doing the thinking for everybody. And the way that sounds is, hey, do you think we ought to do this? Yes, this is how we need to do it. Well, hey, what about this? This patient wants a refund. Yes, this is what you need to do. So I, I coach my, my leaders. When someone comes to you and say, hey, do you what do you think we need to do? This is the very words I want you to say you know what, you're the person with the eyes on it, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Let them tell you. They already have kind of an answer in their head. Let them tell you what their thoughts are, and then you say one of two answers. That is exactly what I was thinking. Perfect. You've affirmed to them we're on the same page with our thinking. 
Or you say, you know what, that's, that is definitely something that would be good, but let's talk this through. What if we did, and give them some direction of how you think through that situation. Then they start feeling confident that they're thinking and on the same page with you, and then you've got the whole team thinking through issues in their departments instead of coming to one person, because that, that burns people out because they're coming to one person saying, hey, what about this, what about that? So somebody's constantly in their face asking questions, and I said, empower them. And that's really the word. Empower people to think for themselves, help them have direction in knowing, am I thinking the way the team, the team is going? Am I within the vision? And then when you do, you empower them to go to the next level and take your practice to the next level. You know, I, I found a five main things I, I find myself keep coming back to for leaders. And, and I discovered this after talking with enough people in leadership positions and just starting to recognize what the issues were. And one of them is, is empowerment, giving people autonomy. How do you strike that balance between, you, you've mentioned the word accountability. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to expand on that a little bit. But also allowing people to make mistakes. There's a book I, I'm a big fan of. I had a chance to interview the author, and it's called Permission to Screw Up. And if you're going to allow autonomy, you also have to, to some degree, allow people permission to screw up. How do you approach that? Some of that just has to be, I think, a willingness to, if you say to an employee, great, your way sounds good, but if it's not right, how do you have that discussion in a way that doesn't stifle their ability and willingness to to keep wanting to contribute to the success of the practice. You know, I've had that happen in several situations and, you know, where doctors get, have gotten really upset because a staff member, or maybe a manager made a decision that they did not agree with and maybe it was the wrong decision. And I said, when you have a, a leader make a wrong decision, that's a learning opportunity. We did not all, we did not come out of the womb being leaders. We learned, how did you learn to be a leader? The way I learned, to have systems in my practices and build million dollar practices is I tried everything that didn't work. And then I found the thing that did and wrote it down and said, right here, through all that pain, this is what came out of it. We're doing this every time now. That's how I got the systems to become successful with eye care optometric consulting is I'm, I tried everything that didn't work and found the thing that did. And we have to allow people to make mistakes. We learn more when we make mistakes than we ever do when we make successes. And the pain of a mistake will drive you to find success. And that's what I say to my doctors is, you know, give them that ability. Don't micromanage them. And when they make a mistake, call them in. Don't holler and yell at them. Sit down and have a conversation and help them understand. And a lot of times it's they handle things differently than the doctor would want to handle them. And sometimes the doctor may not be right in the way he would want to handle them. So I said, you have to help them understand this is your vision. This is your practice. Here's how I want this to happen. Here's what my vision is. And, you know, you have to sit down. The accountability is huge because you can't make changes with no accountability. So when you sit down with accountability, it, this is not, we're not tearing people down at the core of who they are. We're helping people become better. And the way you do that is you give them, you re-educate them on a better way to do the thing that they did that they failed at. And I read a book, I love books too, is um, failure is not those that never, no, excuse me, um, let me think how it goes. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's, it's left my mind. It's a little bitty book. At, winners are not those that never fail, but those that never quit. 
And it talks about how everybody that's ever won anything has failed many times. And if you've ever looked at athletes, they talk about how many times they failed to make the one success that they had. And I think we overlook that and we expect people to win and be successful every time. But the biggest learning things in our life are the things where we feel like we failed, but that was the stair step that took us to success. And it's a re-education process. And I tell them as well, they don't like to have constructive criticism. I said, we're not criticizing them. That's saying there's something wrong with you. We're saying there's something wrong in the way we're, we're doing this process. We're gonna re-educate you on a better way that's gonna help you, it's gonna be easier, it's gonna bring you more success, and it's gonna flow. And that is just a re-education process. We're going back to what, here's the process we were doing, that's not working, what will work. And if you approach it, a lot of times it's how your energy is when you approach a situation. And I don't like to ever approach a situation when I'm upset about it, because that energy carries forward and they pick that up and it's like, okay, they're, they're mad at me, they're upset with me, and I never want that to be the feeling. The feeling is, this is the behavior we're addressing, this is what's wrong with it, here's what doesn't work, here's what, let's, let's realign and let's try this. Now, if they, at that point, do not make the corrections I'm asking them to make, then we're gonna go into a more formal write-up. And then I'm gonna write it down, and I'm gonna go over it with them again, and, and I tell them, this is starting our disciplinary process because we've discussed this. Um, I thought we were in agreement that this is how we're going to do it going forward. You didn't feel like you had any problem doing that. You could do it that way. And it's still not getting done. So we're sitting here again addressing the same situation. So now we're starting the disciplinary process. So, and I always like to let them know if, if the corrections aren't made at this time, it's going to be a formal write-up with consequences, which could be, a uh, probationary period with a cut and pay, and then we'll give you tools to get this corrected. Now, there are some things that um, are immediate termination. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if theft, um, um, issues with patients, sometimes HIPAA mm -hmm. violations, that's gonna be an immediate termination. Most of the time we have a disciplinary process and that's in our manual so that they understand coming on board with us. Here's how we handle it when, when your behavior or your performance is not at a level it needs to be. So we have that, that in our manual, so they already know how it's gonna be handled. But then I tell them again, you know, my and I always say my best case scenario is we walk out of this room and the corrections are made and you're the team player that I know you can be. And the biggest thing I think as leaders, we have to let people know that we believe in them and we think they can accomplish this. If you go into it with the energy that you don't think they're gonna be able to do it, they pick that up why should they even try? If they already feel that you don't think they're gonna be successful, why should they even put the energy into it? So I always want people to know, I believe in you, I picked you, I brought you on this team, and it's my job to make you successful. If it's at all possible, that's my job. So I'm gonna help you be successful, but these are things, and my, my words are, these are deal breakers. Mm -hmm. This has to be corrected, or we're, you're not gonna be able to be on our team, and that would be horrible for me. Yeah. because you are part of my family, you're part of my team. So I wanna help you. But that accountability, that's where it gets hard. So what we do instead is a lot of times talk about them behind their back to other employees, which is drama. And we don't go to the people 
or if we have a problem with someone, instead of going to the person that can affect that, we go to the people behind their back and we create drama. And again, when you start drama, no one's focused on our goals, our vision, or our patients. They're focused on the drama. So that's why we you can have, make drama or you make money, but you're not going to do both. So keeping that drama away starts with very clear instruction, communication, and then accountability for our actions because we're adults. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, again, hitting on the things. I, I mentioned the five things before, and I don't claim this to be the, an exhaustive list, but setting expectations, which you just mentioned, but you can continue going back to accountability, which I think is such a such an important aspect of leadership and also the missing component. One of my favorite definitions of accountability is getting people to perform in a way in advance in which they know they're going to have to answer for their performance at a later date. When people know that they're going to have to answer for what they do, it does build in uh, some mechanism of accountability. And if it maybe it doesn't happen initially, and that conversation might have to happen a few times, but as you said, you kind of escalate the process. But I, I do think it, it's so important because people in general, I just think the way we're wired up, we're not going to want to have to keep explaining, addressing it. Yeah, yes. addressing it. If nothing else to avoid an awkward conversation with our boss, we start to think in terms of, I should probably take action on this feedback <laughs> yes. because I got to keep talking to Miss Carter and I don't want this to, to be awkward. And then it just comes down to, to coachability, which is I, one of my presentations, I used this slide that it's, it's from some research showing the number one reason for new hires not working out is a lack of coachability. All you can do from a leadership standpoint is give that feedback, give them that, those instructions, set those expectations, but it's really up to the employee on whether or not they're gonna be coachable. Right. With that, yeah. Um, can I ask you to speak to uh, leadership by example? I, I had a, a doctor once who, who called complaining about how many of his employees were showing up late to work. And he was going on and on, and he, he dripped this in there at some point, just almost, you know, uh, very casually. He says, well, you know, I know I'm late a lot, but I'm like, whoa, hang on, hold on. You're late a lot. What kind of message is that sending to the, to the rest of the staff? How important is this leadership by example component? That's everything. No one's ever going to perform at a higher level than their leader. They may for a little bit, and that's what I find. One of my favorite books is The Five Levels of Leadership by John Maxwell. And it defines leadership very, very well of letting you know where you're at. And the first level is somebody gave you a title. They saw something in you that they felt were skill sets that might make you a good leader. So they gave you a title. But when you're walking out with your staff, you're just, all you have is a title. They're only following you because of a title. And if you don't perform at that higher level and walk the walk, how can they follow you? How can you lead when your behavior is in the back? And what happens is, is I have people that are, are natural leaders and they'll go from leader level one, they'll build a relationship with their people. Then they'll go to three where they're producing in front of them. And then they're being led by a level one leader. They get very frustrated because that person is not leading by example. They're not performing. They're not producing. They're asking them to do things that they're not willing to do. And then what happens is that person gets discouraged and the morale falls. And I wanted to speak a little bit about that. That's the accountability is not only important to the person that, that is performing at a level that's not acceptable, but it's also very, very um, telling to the people that's on the team of what's going to happen to that person. You're asking me to do this and I perform every day at this level, but that person is walking in here doing nothing and they just, 
get a, get a get out of jail free card. So not only does it hurt the person that you're trying to get up to the level you need, but it hurts the morale of the people around them that are producing because we have so much work that has to be done in a practice. And you know that these things have to get done every day. Well, if you have someone that's performing at a level that's not where they need to be, those things still have to get done. Who's doing them? The rest of the people on the team. So that creates a morale issue because they're thinking, why do they not have to do, they're not held accountable. They just get to do whatever they want to do. But yet I'm held to such a higher level. And that may be being held there by themselves because that's who they are. But when you look at that in the leadership role, they're never going to perform at a higher level than the person that's leading them for a period of time. They may start out that way, but they're going to move on because the respect level is not there. And that's the biggest thing is when you have to hold yourself accountable, you are earning the respect of your people. And if you don't have their respect, they're not going to follow you. And the way you earn that is whatever you're asking them to do, you better be doing it at a higher level. And when I put, put people in leadership positions, I tell them, I don't expect the same thing out of you as I do the other staff. I expect more. You're setting my pace. So if you're not out in the front setting the pace, then you're not the leader. Someone else is. So it's everything. You know, you can't lead when you're not setting the example in the beginning. Last question. I, I like to find this distinction between training and development. They meet a little bit different thing to me semantically. I, I think we look at training as this 30-day process, this 60-day mm -hmm. process of, I need to onboard you. And, and fair enough, sometimes we need to give people the basic skills to start performing their job. But there's also that ongoing development, which I think kind of falls through the cracks. Do we continue to train and invest and pour into our people? And this comes up so often when a, uh, a practice owner will uh, complain about an employee that's not performing at the level they need them to perform at. I'm give, gonna give an obvious example, an optician who's not uh, producing as mm -hmm. much as they'd like, yes. more on the retail side, on the sales side. A natural question for me to ask will be, what kind of training has this person had? And I've literally had people say, none, zero. So how do you expect them to perform at the level you want them to, to perform at? So what I'll hear over and over is I don't have time for that. I don't have, we don't have time to train, we don't have time to develop. Answer that question for a lot of the doctors that it's so important. We have to invest into our people, but as far as the basic skills, the training, the competencies, how do you work with um, your offices and employees to be able to develop their skills? To me, training and development is two different things. Training is I'm training someone to do a position, a job. Development is I'm developing that person at the core of who they are. So when, you're, when you have an optician that's not producing, 99% of the time, it's not about they don't know. It's not about trained to know. It, sometimes it is with products, but it's more of a confidence issue. That's development. So what do we do to develop them? And what I do is, and I, I love to find a book that I know, because I, I had to go back to leadership especially. How did I learn leadership? How did I learn that? You know, and I, there's times 30 years in, studying leadership at a high level, I felt like I was on the bottom ring of the ladder. When I had to start going into two and $3 million practices, building them, I'm not just building one leader. I'm building a leader, a lead tech, a lead front desk person, a lead optician, and then one manager that's going to manage all of that. So it was like, all of a sudden, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm at the bottom of the ladder and I can't hardly reach the next ring. But I thought, how did I learn that? 
I learned that through reading. I learned that through going in here to Zig Ziglar. But I read, you know, See You at the Top, all of, you know, his books, John Maxwell's books. That's how I learned. And I had to ask myself, what's the difference between me telling them what a book says? Let me give you the Sharon Carter version. And them reading it. Because there's two totally different levels of interaction and engagement when I'm telling you what the book says and you're reading it. And so I was thinking about that. What What's the difference? When you are reading something and the light bulb goes off, and I know you've done this because you read a lot, and it's like, ding, 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 wait a minute. Now that's a belief. It's not someone's opinion. It's your belief. How much more do you act on something that's your belief compared to someone's opinion? And so reading and giving them the developmental tools to develop them as people. And what happens with that is it's so much more than training them for a position. They can go somewhere else and find another position easily. I'm telling you, you can go to Indeed right now in my area, and you can find at least 10 jobs for a tech, a front desk person, an optician. They're out there everywhere. But I want my people to know it's more than just about you being able to come here and perform for us on a day-to-day basis. We want to develop you as a leader and help you be a better you in not just what you do when you come here, but in everything you do. And we want to help you build confidence so that you know who you are. And when you help people build who they are, that comes out in your practice at such a level because now they're confident in presenting things to patients. Because again, with the opticians, 99% of the time, it's not that they don't know what to do and they don't have the skill set. They just don't have the confidence to look at someone and say, this is worth it. Let me tell you why this is gonna be a value to you on a day-to-day basis. That's a confidence issue, not a skill issue. So when you develop people, you start building them at the core of who they are and they become better within themselves. And that's when they want to stay on your team. And they're like, why would we want to ever leave this team? Because you're helping me be a better me. So that's the difference between training. Here's the skills you need. And developing, here's how we help you be a better you. What do you want? Again, ask that question. What are your goals and visions for yourself? Then here's a book that we, that I read that helped me. And it's it's amazing when you can, they see themselves become better people. They're more committed to your team. And into your leadership, so that's that's the difference for me between training and development. Miss Carter, you're a wealth of knowledge. Oh my gosh, this was great. Thank you so Steve, much. Steve, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for inviting me. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they get in touch with you? They can find me and my crazy on my website at ecoc.biz, and it'll give you all the different things that we do. Some of the other consultants that work with me. So um, anything that you need, you can also email me there. If you would like my interviewing um, uh, systems, any of that, please feel free to reach out to me because that's what we do. We're here for each other. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And really looking forward to your keynote on Sunday, correct? Yes, on Sunday. Change. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Well, thanks so much. And if if you'd like more information about IDOC and how we work with ODs to help them grow the practice of their dreams, you can find out more at IDOC.net. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Sharon. And uh, we'll see you next time.